We are talking once again with Job Parrish and Maria Tomchik, local writers and activists, here to give us a wrap-up of this past week's news. Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. We're all in different time zones. We are. (laughs) All right. So, starting out with local and a couple updates to uh, TextGate. Yes, a story we've been following for a couple years now uh, from the text from... Uh, the summer of 2020 during the George Floyd protests and the occupation of the area around the East Precinct on Capitol Hill. And uh, lo and behold, uh, several important city leaders uh, had their texts from that period deleted as part of the uh, essentially cover-up of who made the decision to abandon the police precinct on East on Capitol Hill. Um, and uh, we learned some more about that. Mike, you want to take it from here? Sure, yeah. In the uh, Urbanist uh, published a great story on April 27th talking about Microsoft Teams chats, messages that were dug up through a FOIA request. And I'll just uh, go through this text real quick. Microsoft Teams chat messages between the Seattle Police Department and Seattle IT Department directors on June 8th, 2020, cast a new light onto the decision to abandon Seattle's East Precinct. The records obtained through the public records requests appear to show that SPD and the city plan to abandon and evacuate the precinct itself at the direction of Mayor Durkin, and in coordination with SPD command staff, directly contradicting public-facing comments by Chief Best. Specifically, the messages show SPD's then-Chief Operating Officer, Mark Baird, relaying messages to the IT department, claiming that Mayor Durkin had made the decision with respect to abandoning the East Precinct. At 4.23 p.m., Seattle IT's then-Chief Service Director Jim Robinson stated that the decision was made by Mayor Durkin in a Teams chat, quote, there will be no one in the building. The building is being boarded up and fenced. All access is being blocked from the building. Mark wanted me to tell everyone that this was a last-minute decision by the mayor and there just wasn't time to get equipment out. I will leave it up to security folks to make the call on wiping the computers or not. At this moment, SPD and IT appeared to frantically strategize on what materials to remove from the precinct and what files within the precinct to possibly destroy. Replying to Robinson, Dan Lewis, who is IT's digital adoption lead, wrote, quote, Please include Rebecca Boatwright from SPD for legality. If evidence related to active cases is lost from machines, could impact ongoing cases. This was a major concern when we changed email retention, end quote. Uh, And finally, at this point, Seattle IT's Jim Lauder issued an order, quote, please stop on the team's chat. Please contact uh, Saad Bashar. He's asking for no further communication on this channel on this topic until you sync with him, end quote. Bashar, at the time, was the city's chief technology officer. Lauder would subsequently replace him as CTO in 2021. That's the end of... uh, the good stuff. So you'll remember that um, uh, we had the dramatic revelation sometime in 2021 that it was the site commander of SPD who made that decision, that neither uh, Chief Vest nor Mayor Durkin had anything to do with it whatsoever. That was a flat-out lie. Uh-huh. We know that now. And now we know why, why Durkin and Best had deleted the text messages on their phones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and along with mm-hmm. six other people 
uh, SPD and uh, uh, and in the city government. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So now we know that yes, the order came from the mayor's office. Um, and that's what now we know. Expect. Yeah, and now we know too why Jenny Durkin didn't run for re-election. Because she was afraid that that would be found out. By yeah, the and probably also why Carmen Best uh, re- retired. Yes. And it's now like a chief security person at Microsoft. Yeah. Amongst her, her <laughs> so numerous jobs. Now. So she didn't. Yeah, she didn't completely retire. She just resigned from from being uh, the chief of police in Seattle. There's rumors she might run for office, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, she she also applied to become the police chief in New York City, which would have been a disaster for New York City, I think. Yeah. So related to that, though, wasn't there a, a wasn't there another lawsuit? Yeah, there were a lawsuit by a, a couple of whistleblowers, a lawsuit from a couple of people in the uh, the city's uh, or rather the the mayor's uh, public affairs office that um, uh, complained that they were quote routinely subjected to scorn and a demand to perform illegal acts as public records officials. Uh, they they were in charge of uh, making public records requests available to the public. And, of course, the texts were, weren't there to be made available, and uh, they were um, basically told to cover that up. So they sued the city, and the city uh, uh, settled that this week. They did not uh, – we don't know yet how much for, but um, – uh, they before they sued the city, they took their complaint to the uh, Seattle Ethics and Elections uh, Commission, which is the office that tells you when you are first onboarded as a city employee to save all your emails and texts. Um, so uh, they had jurisdiction over that, and uh, SEEC, SEEC upheld their complaint, and uh, Durkin's office then retaliated against them, and so they sued the city, and now the city has settled with them. We don't know yet how much uh, that will cost taxpayers. Yeah, now there's another lawsuit hanging out there that may also be subject to this or may also uh, change because of this disclosure now, and that's the lawsuit by businesses on Capitol Hill that are suing the city because of the formation of the CHOP and the abandonment of the East Precinct. Uh, so this this uh, revelation now of these teams chat messages and of the settling of this lawsuit in covering up the deletion of uh, uh, public records, this could all impact that lawsuit as well. And the city may have end up paying a ton of damages to those businesses. And they probably should, honestly. Which, of course, means we're all. I know, which means, of course, that it's going to come out of the city budget, which is public services, right? All right, so it sounds like we're going to be coming back to that again. Oh, yeah, Uh, it's not over. It's never over. The gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. Yeah, So many of them are. All right, let's uh, move on to King County Council. Yeah, this week the King County Council voted to send a veteran seniors and human services levy to King County voters this year to replace the old levy that's expiring. Uh, the council had two choices in their meeting. They could renew the levy at the same rate as the old levy, uh, 10 cents per $1,000 assessed property value, or they could increase the tax rate to 12 cents per one. 
per $1,000 assessed property value. Uh, human service providers had urged the council to vote for the extra two cent increase, primarily because of inflation. Um, property values are higher. So, of course, the levy at the current 10 cent rate will collect more money. But those inflated property values also mean that it's more expensive to purchase land to build affordable housing, which is the main one of the main things that the that the levy does. And, of course, construction costs, wages and material costs have also increased. A renewal at the 10 cent rate would mean up to a 50 percent cut in the amount of affordable housing that the levy could afford to fund. In addition, the old levy paid for a number of different services, uh, including aid to veterans, services for seniors, funding for domestic violence survivors, gun violence prevention programs, programs to address homelessness and services for low income individuals and families. So the council took two votes. The first was on the higher rate levy, the 12 cent proposal. It garnered five yes votes. And, and four no votes, but it needed a supermajority of at least six votes to pass because the regional policy committee that sent the levy over to the uh, King County Council had voted for the 10 cent version, not the 12 cent version. So to overturn that, the county council needed a supermajority. The swing vote was Dave Up the Grove, who had said that he supported the higher rate proposal. And then this week he switched his vote. He joined Sarah Perry, Pete Von Reichbauer, and Reagan Dunn to vote it down. His reasoning was that he was afraid to put the higher rate version on the ballot because if voters overturned it, then the levy would end abruptly with no revenue that the council could use to replace those critical services. Now, that's fair, but um, you could argue that the two votes that he two recent votes that he cited were not a fair comparison. So he cited two recent votes as an example of voter fatigue with tax increases. One was the Kent School District's bond levy that recently lost at the ballot. And uh, the other was the recent crisis care centers levy that did pass. But uh, but while voters in Seattle overwhelmingly supported it, voters outside the city of Seattle didn't. And uh, it was failing in many parts of unincorporated King County. So this is, I think, the ex exactly the same argument that County Executive Dow Constantine made earlier when he recommended that the council pass the 10 cent version, not the 12 cent version. All I can say is thanks, Dow. So uh, then the council, after voting down the, t the 12 cent version, they voted unanimously on their second vote for the 10 cent version to renew the levy at the same rate. Uh, those four council members who voted against the increase were voting, I think, to make their own jobs harder when the next budget cycle comes around because to infill or, or backfill the money that the levy used to pay for or paid for over the last six years, they're going to have to dig into the county council budget and find that, that funding elsewhere. Yeah, because the, the, with inflation, you know, their costs, uh, go up just as much as, as the revenue does. So. Yeah, um, it it doesn't help. They're going to have to look for for other ways to raise that revenue. Also, although none of them said this openly, I think they were really feeling that there's now plenty of money coming from the state legislature in the city of Seattle to fund affordable housing in King County. I think it was another one of those. Uh, we'll let Seattle foot the bill kind of things while the suburban cities just get to punt. And uh, that's been a problem since the formation of the King County Regional Homelessness Authority, where Seattle 
puts in the vast amount of funding. King County, the King County Council puts in some, and then the suburban cities put in none. And, and, you know, I'm not sure what Seattle can really do about that, other than maybe creating our own county. (laughs) You know, I, I, I think about that, and it's like, well, that might put the fear of God into the county council in those suburban cities. And then if you look at the state of Washington, King County is way bigger than any other county in the state with 2.4 million people versus the next biggest county, which is Pierce County, has just under 1 million. The city of Seattle itself within its borders has about 800,000 people, and that's a larger population than all of the other counties in Washington state except for Pierce, Snohomish, and King. So there's an argument to be made, at least population-wise, for Seattle becoming its own county, at least by size. And there are a number of other U.S. cities that have done that. San Francisco is its own county. Uh, St. Louis is an independent city. So is Baltimore. And, you know, you go down the line. Um, so it, there's a precedent for it. Yeah, there is the a precedent. And, you know, according to the state constitution, a new county can form when the majority of registered voters within the spec- specified area approves of registered voters, not just voters at the poll, approves a proposal for a new county. Uh, the last time a new county was formed in Washington state was in 1911 when Ponderay County formed in the northeast corner of the state. It was carved out of Stevens County and it contains uh, many members of the Ponderay Native American tribe, which it, uh, is also known as the Kalispell. And um, bonus points for pronouncing that correctly because it's not spelled that way. Ponderay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm a native of Washington State, so that's why I know how to pronounce it. I grew up in Pierce County. Now, it's an interesting thought experiment, you know, Seattle becoming its own county. I I don't know what the ramifications would be for, say, Seattle and King County's influence in the state legislature. You know, maybe that's worth considering. Although, uh, when you think about it, it might not matter because I think on a lot of things, Seattle and King County agree. But there are some very key things that they don't agree on. And that's where uh, something like this might might be more than just a thought experiment. Hmm. So. Okay, let's uh, move on. Uh, Appears we will have a new governor next time round. Yes, we will. On Monday, uh, Jay Inslee announced he would not run for a fourth term as governor, uh, probably to the great relief of every ambitious politician in Washington state. Um, Many of uh, them Democrats. <laughs> yes, I'm looking at you, Bob Ferguson and Dow Constantine, who have been waiting in the wing for wings for about 10 years. Lorena um, Gonzalez. Uh, yes. I can think of about half a dozen others. Yeah, so can I. Teresa um, Yeah. <laughs> and and one's outside uh, Seattle also. Uh, mm-hmm. But, um, uh, yeah, Inslee uh, will leave with a complicated legacy. He did guide the state through the pandemic uh, and did a relatively good job of that. He has prioritized climate change, which is finally starting to be reflected in what the legislature is doing, although not to Inslee's satisfaction, certainly. Um, and he's, you know, um, he has... Uh, been a fairly steady hand for the state for the last, uh, you know, dozen years, but he will not run for re-election. And uh, I'm waiting for the uh, uh, the first announced candidate in uh, three, two, one. Uh, it's it's coming right up. So it's coming uh, soon. 
And speaking of announced candidates, we do have a deadline coming up this month for people filing for the primary for the seven city council positions that will be uh, open this year. So, uh, or rather, uh, uh, contested this year. Mm -hmm. Uh, Five of them are going to be open seats. So that's going to be a very crowded primary, and we'll do our best to try and sort through the candidates for you as, uh, as we get toward the primary in August. And I understand there's going to be a special session coming up uh, here soon? Yes. Uh, Governor Inslee uh, called a special session into being because they had one major item on the legislature did that they did not get to before the end of the the scheduled end of the legislative session on April 23rd. Um, That is a fix for the uh, state Supreme Court ruling that struck down the state's felony drug possession statutes. Uh, the legislature put in a temporary fix, um, uh, creating misdemeanors for those drug possessions, but that expires on July 1st. So the legislature has to do something about that before July 1st. Um, so that will uh, come to being on May 16th and will probably be relatively quick because I'm sure they'll hash out some sort of agreement you know, ahead of time so they don't have to spend too much extra time in Olympia. Let's move on to but Nat. It, it should it should be noted that once a special session is called, uh, anybody can introduce anything. It doesn't ha- they don't legislators do not have to stick to that one agenda item. They can also throw in their own proposals for anything else. So we'll see if if that muddies the waters at all. Oh, that could be very interesting. All right, uh, moving on to national and our uh, the uh, the rot in uh, the Supreme Court. Yeah, um, we had uh, more revelations about um, uh, certainly the appearance of corruption in the Supreme Court this week, um, much of them involving Clarence Thomas. Surprise, surprise. Um, Leonard Leo, the, uh, the founder of the Federalist Society, which has been pretty influential in every Republican nominee since Clarence Thomas, um, he uh, reportedly uh, gave some uh, quote-unquote consulting fees to the consulting company that uh, Ginny Thomas, the Republican activist wife of Clarence, uh, operates. Now, there is no evidence that Ginny actually did any work for the, for some $100,000 in 2011, and excuse me, 2012. Um, so, uh, you know, and uh, apparently uh, with the reporting requirements for Thomas's income, uh, all he has to say is that his wife got consulting money. He doesn't need to say who from. Uh, and then Leo, in turn, uh, laundered it through a um, uh, 501c3 that he operates. And uh, the Washington Post reported that there was a note attached to this saying, no mention of Ginny, of course. So he was taking multiple steps to try and cover up this payment. Um, the Post uh, uh, reported on $25,000, and then subsequent reporting, I believe by the New York Times, uncovered another seventy-five. So a total of $100,000, which is a nice change if you can get it, uh, for doing nothing. Um, and, you know, Leo, his, his business is the Supreme Court. He screens nominees for the Supreme Court. He... Um, uh, files amicus briefs with the Supreme Court constantly. Um, so the idea that does he have business before the Supreme Court, uh, pretty much by definition, that's what the Federalist Society does. 
Um, meantime, this adds to the long list of uh, growing scandals. We also found out this week that uh, Neil Gorsuch sold a property in Colorado for uh, a 40-acre col- uh, property for, uh, to the head of a law firm that frequently comes before the court. Um, uh, that didn't – the wife of uh, John Roberts, the chief justice, uh, reportedly was making millions recruiting lawyers to top law firms. Um, that didn't get a whole lot of attention. And then, of course, all the previous – uh, questionable scandals involving uh, Republican billionaire mega donor Harlan Crow and uh, Clarence Thomas. So there's a real question at this point: Can anybody do anything about this? Because the Supreme Court has exempted itself from any ethics requirements. Uh, there's a lot of noise among Democrats in Congress right now uh, to try and impose ethics requirements. But, of course, Republicans, quite predictably, are saying, well, no, the court can police itself. We don't need anything like that. So that proposal is probably dead in arrival in the House. And the possibility of, of forcing Clarence Thomas out as probably the most corrupt, chief, uh, corrupt Supreme Court justice in modern times there's no easy way to do it, honestly. Uh, so, you know, not with not without Republican cooperation. And, of course, uh, the Supreme Court having become so politicized that uh, Republicans very clearly see their nominees, uh, you know, uh, third person possessive is intentional there. Um, their nominees are are uh, not to be touched. Um, and. You know, primarily it's Republican nominees that have run into these ethics problems. Uh, Roberts, Gorsuch and, Gorsuch and Thomas, of course, are all uh, nominated by Republican presidents. So uh, here we are in these uh, continuing drip, drip, drip of headlines cannot do anything for uh, the American public's confidence in an impartial judiciary, which is uh, unfortunate. It's yet another not more evidence that Republicans and Republican-aligned judges are under, uh, undermining faith in democracy as they undermine democracy itself. Okay, moving on to our banking crisis. Yeah, first off, the Fed knew how bad things were at Silicon Valley Bank long before it collapsed, yet they failed to conduct adequate oversight or force the bank to make necessary changes. That was the... Uh, that was the uh, conclusions of a report that was released last week by the Fed. Uh, notably, the Trump administration worked hard to gut bank oversight and mid-sized uh, banks like Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and now First Republic Bank were no longer subject to the same strict oversight as large, uh, systemically important banks, yet Silicon Valley Bank collapse still triggered a systemic panic that also imperiled Signature Bank and now First Republic Bank, which on Monday was hastily sold to J.P. Morgan. The Fed uh, report went into what what went wrong with the oversight of Silicon Valley Bank, and it concluded that regulators failed to recognize the severity of Silicon Valley Bank's violations. They failed to follow up on those violations and to make sure that the bank had remedied the problems. And then they failed to exact any sanctions against Silicon Valley Bank for ignoring the regulators' requirements. 
In other words, and, the current regulatory regulatory system just did not work. And critically, the Trump administration and Congress modified Dodd Frank, which was the you know relatively mild reforms put in place after the collapse in two thousand eight two thousand nine um, that would have to exempt uh, mid sized banks from exactly. the same oversight as larger banks. Exactly. And there are, are and, three. And, and Silicon Valley fell exactly in that hole, so they were not. Re- Required to report a lot of their problems. Yeah. Now, there are three major systemic issues that are imperiling the bank industry right now that uh, could have been foreseen ahead of time as issues with these mid-sized banks. Uh, the first is increasing interest rates, which makes it more expensive to borrow money now while making the old bond and loan investments that the banks have issued in the past and still hold on their books uh, which were made with lower interest rates, it makes those uh, investments less valuable now. So when depositors need cash or start to panic and withdraw their cash, the banks don't have enough assets. The assets are not as valuable as they were to sell to cover those draws. Um, but then you might say, shouldn't the FDIC insurance uh, backstop that? Well, the FDIC insurance only covers $250,000 in cash in each person's account. And many small to medium businesses who primarily bank with these mid-sized regional banks have much more than $250,000 in cash in their business checking accounts, especially the accounts that they use to cover their payroll. Many of those businesses uh, bank with those small to mid-sized banks, and it, when they lose confidence in a bank and they start withdrawing those funds, that can tank the bank very, very quickly. And then there's uh, two issues with the commercial real estate sector right now. Many businesses have downsized their office space because their workers haven't come back to the office after COVID-19. Some estimates say 40% of workers are still working from home, but I think in some places it's higher, maybe even much higher than that. That loss of rental income means that landlords are having a hard time making their mortgage payments to banks, okay? Uh, Now is a really tough time for landlords and commercial property owners whose mortgages or loans are coming due because in order to make those balloon payments on those those mortgages that are coming due, they will now have to refinance at higher interest rates. That's going to require higher monthly payments on those mortgages at a time when those landlords may be far under 100% occupancy in their buildings. Okay, so we may be seeing some defaults. That's going to impact those banks as well. And then the third systemic issue is that many economists are forecasting a recession. And that means that other businesses that bank with those midsize and smaller banks will be needing to withdraw more cash and they won't be able to take out new loans at higher interest rates, which is how those small and midsize banks make their money. So when you add all those things together, you add it to other uh, systemic issues like inflation, rising interest rates, it creates this perfect storm for the banking sector, especially those mid-sized and smaller banks. And right now, they're not subject to the same kind of regulations that would require them to have enough assets to cover all all of the deposits or potential draws on their cash. So that is why we're still seeing issues in, with the banking crisis, why uh, when the Fed intervened for Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank, it didn't stop it. Uh, and First Republic Bank fell 
earlier this week. So, you know, right as of Thursday, there were runs on two other banks as well, and their stock prices dropped precipitously. We'll see if it's over or not. I think it's probably not over, given these other systemic pressures. Agreed. All right. So we're tight on time. I mm-hmm. don't think we can do the debt ceiling to give it justice. That's all right. It's not going it'll, away. It, it'll, be right. here, it'll be here <laughs> next week, believe oh, me. So, a, couple, um, a couple really critical developments uh, with Donald Trump. Uh, one is uh, that the uh, E. Jean Carroll civil lawsuit will be going to jury uh, early next week. Um, Trump's deposition is breathtaking. I urge people to go and listen to it or read it. Yeah. Um, it, he's a, a monster. Good for him. He is a monster. And then, um, we're also, uh, looking at, uh, the, uh, the investigation in Fulton County, Georgia, now having offered immunity to nine of the 16 fake electors in Georgia. Um, now, you can't accept immunity unless you cop to criminality, uh, with very narrow exceptions. Um, and the electors are saying, well, we didn't do anything wrong. So they're clearly, uh, looking to try and get testimony against higher ups. And the enduring mystery of the fake electors scheme is scheme is who thought it up and who was coordinating it. Uh, it was run out of Rudy Giuliani's office, but did those orders come from Donald Trump himself? We don't know yet. Let's find out. Well, with that, we're unfortunately out of time for this week. We will have more next week. Oh, yes.